Anyone who's ever done anything worth doing has dreamed big, failed mightily, and mostly started from humble beginnings. This is a podcast about such people. The most fascinating podcast in the world is fascinating because of the stories of the human beings. Today, we're with Tony Mazzo. Uh, Tony is president of Urban Foundation. He is a professional engineer in New York State and has both a bachelor's and master's in engineering from CCNY. Uh, Tony was raised in the Italian tradition in Queens, New York. He has three siblings, uh, one of which is a twin. And Tony is respected and admires and admired by his peers, clients, and competitors alike. Tony has presided over some fascinating and complex projects in his career, some of which we'll talk about today. Uh, Tony's married to Nancy, and they have four daughters between them. Uh, Tony has always seen himself as a builder rather than a designer, but there was a time when he considered doing neither and uh, almost pursued a liberal arts degree. Those were dark days. <laughs> uh, welcome, Tony. Thank you, Pat. Um, nice to be here with you. Thank you. Um, so I was thinking about Queens and um, what it might have been like when you were a very young child. And I wondered what your earliest memories are of growing up in Queens. Well, growing up in Queens in the 60s and 70s, uh, our neighborhood was generally a blue-collar neighborhood. Uh, and we had multicultural backgrounds, but we all got along very well. Uh, we were baby boomers at the time, so most of our childhood was spent outdoors rather than indoors. That's the way mom wanted it until dinner time. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we played a lot of sports. Uh, everything was park ball, as it was called, because everything was played in the park when we were old enough. Um, and um, we had a really good childhood. The neighborhood was flocked with a lot of guys and girls, and uh, it was a wonderful time. The music was the best in a, a century, as you may imagine, where rock and uh, Motown were competing against each other, of which I like both, and uh, it made for a, a, a great growing up experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, back then, do you remember, like, were you inclined towards math and science as a young child? Or Yeah, I, I, um, I seem to have blossomed from like the seventh grade on. I wasn't really uh, into my own until then. Uh, it's only when I started to be more in, in the company of more peers of different neighborhoods where I realized where I stood with them. And I started to excel in mathematics and science and in English. Uh, I became uh, a pretty good writer and, you know, won the English award when I graduated ninth grade. Uh, I, and in being so, I wanted to uh, continue on a path that would benefit me uh, and not be um, influenced by peer pressure and the, the great neighborhood and the socialization that presented itself. So I chose not to go to the neighborhood high school, but rather to go to a specialized high school. So I went to Thomas Edison Vocational and Technical High School to study electricity and electronics. 
that wasn't totally my idea. My older brother uh, went to George Westinghouse to study the same thing because he wanted to be an electrical engineer. And so uh, a couple of my friends uh, who I knew were going to Thomas Edison, who were a few years ahead of me, uh, enticed me to go with them only because they gave me a ride to school in the morning. They were already driving cars. Mm -hmm. So I went there uh, for my sophomore year, I got a ride. And my junior year, I got a ride. And my senior year, I figured it out. And uh, it was a great experience uh, at Thomas Edison High School. Mm -hmm. I graduated uh, in 1972 uh, as valedictorian. I was, uh, I, I really liked the, uh, the electricity and electronics and the physics and all that, all that kind of stuff that, and the math that not many people really want to take some time, their precious time up with, but uh, I really liked it. And I knew that uh, I had something that I could, I could go with. And so I, I, I was very happy. I made that decision. Mm -hmm. So when you were in high school, were you, were you working summer jobs at that point or? Yeah. Uh, I worked, um, uh, first, my first job was in the neighborhood drugstore where I stocked shelves and made deliveries. Um, I did that all the way through, uh, my senior year. Um, and then I, uh, and then into my first year of college, when I had to decide where I was going, um, I took a, a turn off the main road for math and science and take a different path just to see how that would go with me. And so I got introduced to things like philosophy and psychology and sociology and all those other ologies that uh, touched me in a different way. And, and uh, I had grown to appreciate them from a people person study where I've always been a student of human behavior. I thought that always would be benefit for me to know how to get along with people and have people like me. So I took some of those courses and uh, it filled my time and filled my interest. Um, but it's an interesting turn of events that happened to me uh, by the middle of my second year of college, uh, I was working, by that time I already got a job. I graduated from the drugstore and got a job in the neighborhood factory where they manufactured emergency lighting, uh, mm -hmm. the rotary lights for the police cars, the flashing lights for the emergency vehicles, uh, army tank lights, uh, condescension lamps and street lamps, uh, medical spot uh, lamps, uh, and it was right up my wheelhouse because I had a really strong background in electricity and electronics. So uh, I was more than qualified to at least walk through the doors. But mm -hmm. it was, a, but the, the factory itself was a machine shop. And mm -hmm. it gave me the opportunity to uh, see how raw materials, pipe, plate, uh, uh, threaded rod, things of that nature, how they could be bent, drilled, uh, welded, and shaped to make final products and specifically uh, these emergency lamps. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, uh, I would work summer, I would work part-time during college because the owner of the factory was an engineer himself, a civil engineer. And he had two sons who ran the company and they were civil engineers. And so he had a kind of, he had a fond liking for me because I was one of the only young employees uh, that was actually an engineering student. And so he gave me whatever time uh, off I needed. I can make my own hours. 
because he found that my background and my my uh, natural ability to work with my hands uh, was an asset to him, no matter how much he could get out of me. So that worked out really nicely. It was, it was just a, a nice place to work. Um, a lot of guys and girls, as you can imagine, when you're in your late teens and early twenties, uh, and we would I would work summers all summer long uh, to to make money and you know support my car and gas and that kind of thing. And we would eat lunch across the street on the high stoops and you know, everybody brown bagged it. And so everybody would congregate across the street. And that's when an interesting turn of events happened to me. I was sitting at the top step with, with my buddy and we're eating a sandwich and down below at the bottom of the steps was an older gentleman who joined the company uh, in the beginning of the summer. And I would say he was around old late twenties, early thirties. Only he wasn't eating. He had a textbook open, and uh, he was he was studying. And I noticed it was a, a, from afar that it was a, a math book, actually a calculus book. And so I I didn't have a chance to talk to him all summer, but to say hello, good morning, and maybe work side by side with him. But I, I didn't really get to know him that well. Uh, but I he I got curious about what he was studying, so. I excused myself from my buddy. I went down to the bottom step and I said, you know, what do you got there? And he said, oh, listen, this is not for you. This is this is high math. This is calculus and it's very complicated. So I said, well, can I take a look? He said, look, sure, but you're not going to understand this. Oh, you're doing differential equations. He looked at me. He's you what? I says, yeah, you, look, he, I, he said, you, I was telling him how to ex, to perform the, the procedures. And he said, who are you? I said, what do you mean? He said, how is it that you know this stuff without a textbook and you're working here? And I said, well, I'm actually, uh, truth be told, I'm a, I'm a college student and I'm working summers because I had the summer off. He says, well, what are you studying? And I said, well, you know, philosophy, psychology. He says, are you out of your mind? He said, you have the skill set to do this kind of math without a textbook and you're studying what? He said, you should be an engineer. That's the kind of stuff that student engineers are dying to have. And so he was like my guardian angel. And it was that conversation, nobody else's, that turned me around. And the next semester I registered at, from, I was going to Queens College my first two years. And then I, I transferred to City College and did my last three years of straight engineering school till I got out. Hmm. What a Great turn of events. It's a divine intervention, I think. I, I called him my guardian angel. I never would have met him uh, if not for him coming to work at that particular time, uh, that summer, timing where it was it was a transitional time to make a move from one university to another. Hmm. On the stoop. <laughs> on the stoop. Yeah, that's a, if you remember that term, everybody yeah. hung out on the stoop. Yep. Um, so I remember you talking about, uh, your first job, I believe it was Slattery. Yes. At that time. What was that like? Um, I, well, uh, it turned out that, uh, one of my best friends from college, Stu Sokolov had graduated six months before me and, uh, he had already started at Slattery. And when it was time for me to graduate and look for a job, look for a job, uh, he had given me a call. He said, look, he says, there's an opening here. 
uh, and it would be perfect for you. So why don't you go for the interview? And so I did go for the interview and uh, I was hired right away. And uh, it, it was a, they're a big heavy construction company. They're no longer named Slattery. They've since been bought up by a company called Skanska and uh, they do all the big heavy construction work um, in New York City and actually along the East Coast. At the time when I went to work with them, they were it was the subway era where they were building the 63rd Street Tunnel in New York City. Uh, they were building the, the WMATA stations in Washington. We were building the MARTA stations uh, down in Atlanta. And we were building the uh, Center City commuter rail in Philadelphia. So it was an exciting time to be in, in heavy construction. And I got a, a world of knowledge and a visualization uh, working there for three years. Mm-hmm. It's a funny story about how I became a civil engineer, though, if you don't, I'd like to tell you that sure, story. Sure. So I told you my brother, my older brother, Steve, was went to George Westinghouse to study electricity and electronics, graduate high school, and went to City College. And he, he kind of paved the way for uh, my path. And so when my father uh, approached me one day when I was graduating high school, he said, so where where you want to go? I said, well, I'm going to go to City College, like Steve, I'm going to follow the same thing and be an electrical engineer. He said, no, nah, maybe you don't want to be an electrical engineer. I said, well, why do you say that? I said, well, look, I already got one of those. Why don't you be a civil engineer? I don't have one of those. So I left and I said, well, you know, okay, dad, I, I don't know the difference between the two, but I have a solid background in electricity and electronics. He said, that's fine. He said, you can take that with you. But I really think you, I, I, I really think you should be a civil engineer. And that was probably one of the few pieces of advice I took from my father back then, because in those days, uh, when you were in your 20s, you wanted to make your own decisions in life because you could, because it had to do with me personally. Uh, But I took his advice. And quite frankly, uh, it was the best piece of advice he ever gave me, because uh, being a civil engineer feeds into my DNA uh, and being a contractor even more so because you can employ the theoretical with the practical and you mix them both together and you could do amazing things with that. Another divine intervention. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. He would think so anyway. <laughs> uh, no doubt. Uh, but there, there came a time for a decision for you. And uh, I remember you telling me um, emotionally that it was difficult for you because your father didn't want you to do what you wanted to do. At the end of your time with Slattery? Yeah. You know, my father came, as most of our parents of my generation, they came from the post-Depression world where security was everything. And my father knew of Slattery. It was a very big company, very established. And they knew that he knew that security, uh, job security uh, and benefits uh, was paramount in his mind. Uh, but it turned out that in my third year of Slattery, I, I met a gentleman called, his name was Rudy Van Leeuwen. He was a good friend of my next boss. And he joined the company in that third year. I befriended him uh, because he was an older gentleman, very kind and very knowledgeable. And uh, we got along very well. And at the end of that third year, he said to me, you know, Tony, he says, I have a friend who needs a young engineer just like you. And I said, oh, really? I said, so tell me more. He says, well, you know, 
his name is Mel Fibish, and he works for a company called Urban Foundation. They're a smaller company than this, and they, they're looking for their first young engineer to join their firm. I said, but look, I'm, I've been here. How do I, you know, I, I think I owe this company that I'm working for something because they took a chance with me. He says, Tony, you've given them what you were obliged to do. He says, I really think you should look at this opportunity. And so I did. And and uh, so I went for an interview and everything went well. So now was the time when I had to come home and tell my dad that uh, um, I'm at the crossroads of my career and that uh, I think this this move, while a lateral move, was an important stepping stone to my future. And so you can imagine the conversation didn't go that well because I caught him by surprise and I certainly... Uh, uh, went against his beliefs on what would be good for me. Um, so when I told him that I had this opportunity to uh, change my career direction and go with, with a, a different job, same con- uh, contracting, but a smaller company, he wanted to talk me, he tried to talk me out of it. He said, what are you doing? You already have a job. Why do you have to change? I said, that because I'm the first young engineer in. And there's an opportunity because look, someday they're going to need somebody as a successor. And maybe that could be me. And no matter what I did, I couldn't convince him. And so, you know, I was a little disheartened, uh, but that never stopped me. I was used to that, uh, you know, being uh, coming from a strong Italian family where the father ruled and everyone else kind of walked in step. But I walked away from the table and uh, I, I, I just in a huff and I, and I saw my mother doing the dishes in the kitchen. And I just pounced on the on the counter and I said, and I shaking my head, and she was making like she wasn't paying attention. And I'm <laughs> and I'm I'm just I turned over to look at her and I said, Ma, you heard this conversation? And she said, What? What? No, no, I didn't I didn't hear anything. I says, Come on, Ma, you heard that. How do you not hear dad? I said, You heard this conversation. What do you think? She says, I don't think anything. I said, don't tell me. I mean, you always had a, an opinion. You may not have agreed with him all the time, but you and I had many conversations and you always gave me your opinion. So she cautiously turned around, made sure he wasn't listening and he was watching the six o'clock news on TV, which he religiously watched and had his full attention. And she turned to me. She said, do you have an opportunity here? I said, yeah, I'm the first guy in. This is a great opportunity. I said, look, I'm single, I'm young. What's the difference? If it doesn't work out, no harm, no foul. So she said, are you sure that this, this you, from your opinion, you think this is the right move? I said, Ma, I think it's a great move. So she said, you can grow with this company? I said, I'm, I know they're going to like me, Ma. I know I can, I can help this company and we can grow together. So she turned back one more time, make sure dad wasn't looking. And she turned to me, she said, well, then you go for it. And I just grabbed my mother and hugged her and kissed her. Says, "Ma, that's all I need to know. Uh, you know, I'll I'll square it with Dad after I do this, so this way he he can't try to take a second round at me." And that's <laughs> and and that's the story of how I came to Urban. Uh, that was in 1981, February of 81. It's divine intervention after divine intervention. Well, my mother was my real saint, and uh, you know, and really- growing up. And she would always be the one, the voice of reason and the one who had more compassion and, mm-hmm. you know, and saw her sons uh, as individuals and not as disciples of the father, right. which is 
typical of the mother in an Italian family. Mm-hmm. And Rudy, too, to push you toward Mel. R- R- Rudy, R- Rudy, again, it was all timing. He mm-hmm. came in the third year of, uh, of, of my employee. Uh, he happened to be a, a chief engineer under Mel Fiebisch when they both worked in another company. And uh, it's only because I befriended him be- uh, because I had took a liking to him. He took a liking to me that he had uh, enlightened me about the offer to to change companies and, and have an opportunity working with his best friend, Mel Fiebisch. Mm. So, yeah, that was that's perfect timing, too. And uh, so he, he too, was my uh, guardian, guardian angel, uh, as was that gentleman, Charlie, who was on the bottom step of that stoop. Mm. And, and, and that's how that's how the, the course of my career started. So you meet Mel Fiebisch first day. What what's Mel like? Uh, you know, it's funny. Mel Fiebisch uh, is a genius and he's a gentleman and he's a scholar and he is the uh, he was the icon of one of, the, of one of the big icons of the industry at that time. And the funny part about it is I didn't realize till six months later that I was working for this man and was going to make me the next Mel Fiebisch in in the in the construction world. And at that time, I said to myself, how lucky am I that I know that all the young engineers that I was working with on the phone for the past six months in my first year of employee with Urban, who knew of Mel and called Mel up to ask him questions and work with him and, and just uh, exposed to me who he really was. I said to myself, my God, these guys would give their right arm to take my job away from me. But I was the one who was fortunate enough to get the opportunity. Mm. So how lucky am I? Mm, that's great. So uh, in the early days, do you remember some of your early projects? Uh, yeah. Uh, it's funny when we, we first came, when I first came to urban, uh, mm-hmm. they were in the thick of things. They did some of the biggest jobs uh, in Manhattan. They 199 Water Street, which is uh, on Water Street where Abercrombie and Fitch is, and it's a big, uh, ha- a big, high-rise office building uh, done on a big mat foundation below water. Uh, we did the Racine Restaurant on 54th Street where they held up the building uh, while they dug two basements underneath it. Uh, we did 85 Broad Street, which is the uh, uh, the home for Goldman Sachs where this was a big excavation with sheet piling and rock excavation and mass concrete pours. Uh, I was in awe of the kinds of things that we would do, that this company was capable of doing uh, and that I had a bird's eye view and now I could be part of it uh, in, 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 my na- in the neighborhood, in, in New York City, as opposed to working for the bigger company who did a lot of out-of-town work. I was in total awe. And so it sounds to me like it was a two-way street, like you were in awe, but also Mel saw something in you pretty early on. Um, initially, you could call it luck, you know, maybe maybe everyone saw something in you, but certainly putting two people together, there's a certain amount of serendipity there. Yeah, yeah we, work, we, work, we work hand in hand. I, was, I realized that I was learning the trade at the feet of the master, mm-hmm. and I was humbled by it, and I just... I just knew this opportunity is a once in a life opportunity for once for very few people. And mm. so I took full advantage of it. Mm, that's great. Um, 
so you had a pretty rapid ascent uh in the company like uh it wasn't i forget how long you told me but at, within like six or seven years you were in senior management well we didn't have much of a organization it was <laughs> it was mel Fiebisch. uh i was the uh he, he was uh, vice president uh, okay. i was the project engineer and the founder of the company leon levy was the president uh that was the structure of our company uh, from the uh, administration end. Uh, Leon Levy, in and of himself, is a, was a, re a really special man. Uh, he he too influenced my career um, in a business like manner, as Mel did in a technical manner. And so I had two iconic uh, individuals who were my seniors, uh, and having myself in a position to as in receivership to learn all their intelligence from the mutual perspectives, which gave me good grounding for uh, my ascent in the company. Mm -hmm. So there's two iconic projects that everyone likes to talk about that you've done. And I figured maybe we could talk a little bit about each of them. Sure. And uh, the second one to be sure. Mm -hmm. But the first would be the, uh, the horizontal move, uh, the theater that you moved. I forget how many feet. That, that was you're, you're speaking of the Empire Theater on 42nd Street mm -hmm. uh, between 7th and 8th Avenue. Um, it's an interesting story, actually. One of our clients uh, who uh, had asked me two years prior, was it possible to move just the facade of this 100-year-old theater um, and move it 170 feet down the block? And I said, just the facade? And he said, yeah, it's just a facade. They don't need the rest of the theater. And I said, well, look, I think it's probably easier to build, to move the entire theater than just the facade. And they said, why do you think that, Tony? It's much more weight. I said, it's not about the weight. It's about the stability. It has three dimensions. With mm -hmm. only two dimensions, you'd have to create the third dimension, which in and of itself in increases the risk and mm -hmm. the ordeal. So they said, you think you can do that? I said, yeah, I think you can do that. And then said, okay, then, then, uh, why don't you give us the price on that? I said, oh, you want a price on this too? And so they, they laughed and they said, that's fine. And so it was the design build project where uh, we designed, believe it or not, with the assistance of Rudy Van Leeuwen, who, oh uh, who, who uh, had some, we brought him into our team because he had some firsthand experience on uh, moving buildings because uh, he did a few in his tenure with a prior company. Uh, which, again, you can imagine how thrilled I was. I have Rudy Van Leeuwen and Mel Fiebisch both to, mm. to devise this, this technical uh, marvel of how to move a 3,700-ton, 100-year-old landmark theater 170 feet horizontally down the block to its new location. And we moved it on a rail system with hydraulic jacks, and uh, it, it worked like a charm. I learned so much about it. I had previously been uh, trained in a lot of shoring work and underpinning and things of that nature from the from 1981 when I joined Mel to to 1998 when I finally when we finally moved that theater March 1st 1998 and so it was just the additional component of making the building mobile. Uh, which was the component that was left to be resolved. 
and and figured out uh, in order to move the theater. And, and to tell you the truth, we we did so well. We moved the theater in less than five hours, and I think everybody was anticipating it was going to take about eight. Mm-hmm. And uh, is there anything else about that job that was uh, unique or or sort of set the tone for future jobs? I feel like you became president around that time. Well, is sure. it, that's that that is true. Uh, mm-hmm. So I started in 1998 by uh, 19, sorry, 81 by 1998. Uh, that was a landmark uh, occurrence for me, no pun intended. Mm. Uh, but at that time, uh, from being a vice president of the company uh, back back in 1986, some four or five years after I started, uh, then becoming the senior vice president in 1996, uh, after moving the Empire Theater and the industry knowing that this was my project personally, uh, the Leon, our president, finally said, Tony, it's time to turn, pass the gavel over to you and you're gonna be the new found, you, as of January 1st of 1999, you're gonna run this company, you're gonna be the president of the company and it's, a, it's you've deserved it and you've earned it. And so the industry is ready for you now. And 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 we're all depending on you to, because we know you could do it um, to, to to continue the success of the company and uh, have it move upward. Mm-hmm. So when you got to be the president, did you make any big changes like big hires or anything like that or? Um, well, we were very fortunate a few years prior where we hired a, a, another genius in Rick DeLouis. He had come mm-hmm. from a company that uh, we had to purchase in order to finish the job because mm-hmm. the company's working for uh, ran out of money and we had to finish the job. So we bought the, the, some of their equipment and we, we took him with us. And he actually put us in the drilling business. Uh, and as such, we went from drilling small seven-inch diameter piles 100 feet deep in oh, 1994 to drilling the first the case uh, 36 inch caissons for the world trade center uh, uh, back in uh, 2001 and so he too brought a lot of expertise in the equipment world the drilling equipment world but also in the engineering world uh, so that he was the perfect person for me to be my counter and, and discuss strategies and engineering techniques and invent new kinds of ideas for 25 years. And we always came up with something new and novel and waited for the right job to introduce it and, and, uh, and benefit by it and, and try to be profitable. So you tell a great story and that story has been chronicled in ENR and many other places at this point, but the, the events leading up to the Palace Theater. Um, can you tell me about, um, I think it was initially, was it Eric McGovern that approached you or the owner that approached well, you? Well, initially, 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 it was the owner's rep who approached me. Mm-hmm. I had met Paul Boardman in, I think, 2016. And we were in the room discussing another pre-construction project that he had across the street. And at the end of that meeting, 
he asked me, Tony, can I have a conversation with you in another room after we're done? I said, sure, Paul, why not? And I just met this gentleman, a great guy, by the way. Uh, and he, he, we went into the other room. He said, look, he says, we got this project across the street and we're thinking about it. Um, but it, we're not sure that it can be done. I, he says, so I heard that you're the guy I should be talking to. I said, well, I'm not so sure whether that you heard right, but, you know, fire away. Let me hear what you got to say. He said, look, the Palace Theater across the street, we need to lift it 30 feet in the air. I said, 30 feet in the air? He said, yeah. He said, do you think you could do it? And, you know, my nature was always to say yes before I <laughs> would really think about it. I said, sure, I think it could be done. Well, look, I knew physics. Um, we've done things that we've never done before, and it's just some um, some divine inspiration that will get you to the finish line. So I said, yeah, I think it can be done. Now, he said, look, we're only thinking about it. And I said, well, look, let me give him positive because it's probably not going to happen anyway. Who does this? It's never been done before. But I wanted to give him, a, a, you know, I wanted to give him some positive feedback uh, just in case it was going to come to fruition. Well, little did I know, a year later, I got called by Eric McGovern. He's the president of uh, Pavarini McGovern. And he was an old, he's an old friend of mine. We, I've known him for over 30 years. And we've done a lot of work together in his former life when he worked for his uh, father, Gene McGovern of Lair McGovern. Uh, and I was with Urban all these years. You know, now we're talking about 2017. So I'm almost uh, 36 years with the company. And uh, I've done a lot of things in that time. But he called me up. He said, look, he says, I got this job and it, it's a foundation job. We have to hold the building up and build a second basement under the first basement. I said, OK, well, I've done that before. So great, great. He says, you're interested? Yeah, he says, good. He says, oh, he says, look, but the story goes on. He says, what do you mean? He says, well, look. It's in the middle of Times Square. I says, that's okay. We've done a lot of jobs in Times Square. We, the renaissance of Times Square from the 90s on, we did the majority of that uh, of those alterations. So and we're familiar with the area. And, and so, you know, we're good. He said, well, there's one more thing I got to tell you. So what is that? He said, they got this theater and it's got to be raised. So then all of a sudden, a light bulb went on in my head. I said, oh. Uh, he said, yeah. He says, uh, they want to raise it 30 feet in the air. And I didn't flinch because I had been pre-warned about a year ago from Paul Boardman. I said, 30 feet, really? He says, yeah. He said, what do you think? I said, I think it's a, I think it's a pretty cool idea, don't you? He says, yeah. He says, but that's part of the job. He says, do you think you can do it? I said, absolutely. I said, with more conviction than I did to Paul Boardman a year ago, <laughs> because now here it was, it was in front of me. And it was mine for the taking. So I said, oh, absolutely. He says, do you want any help? I said, no. He said, well, I can get her in jail. I said, I don't want anybody else. And he, and he said, why? I said, because I can do this. And I don't need anybody giving me their opinions because it's going to be, uh, it's, I think I have more experience in this kind of work, uh, albeit that I have credentials from moving another structure in Times Square. But I'm not saying it because of that. I'm saying it because I don't want anybody else's help. I know that. Urban's in-house engineering prowess is going to figure this thing out and get it done for you. So you got nothing to worry about. And the next thing I know, I'm signing a contract to raise, to not only build a second basement in solid rock, 
by holding up the first basement uh, of a the- of a hundred year old landmark theater and of an existing uh, uh, basement of a 46, 43 story double tree hotel, uh, all in the in the waiting period of getting the uh, the floors above the theater removed so I can lift and tuck this theater up into that that cavity and and so it goes uh, and it, it's an it's it's an interesting start to a very interesting story of how one starts with nothing uh, there's there's no script there is no text uh, it's there's no history it's, this has never been done before and uh, it was a unique opportunity to call on everything that your engineering training has brought you to, to the forefront. And uh, I will tell you uh, that it it was an amazing journey. It took about a year to finally figure out how to do it. And it is... Uh, it is the crown jewel of Urban Foundation's accomplishments in this town. Mm-hmm. So after you talk to Eric, it's still preliminary at that point, and you have to get through, was it Landmarks? Landmarks, yes. What were those meetings like? What well, do you remember? Yes, I do. So after the phone call uh, to say, okay, you're in, um, he tells me, by the way, next week we got a meeting in front of Landmarks Commission to tell them how we're going to do this. I said, Eric, you just told me, I don't know how I'm going to do this. He says, don't worry about it, Tony. You're pretty good in front of an order. You just, you just figure out, give them, get them to have the confidence in you. And that's all they could expect of you for now. So fast forward, we go to the Landmarks Commission the following week. And the architect has their say about how they're going to refurbish the architectural fabric of the theater's interiors, which are landmark. And the structure engineer talked about the structural alterations that will accommodate grandeur spaces and how the the, lo- the new lower levels will be done. And then it was my turn. And and the commissioner had said to me, uh, had said, I've heard all that other stuff and I'm and about with the architectural, structural, and and the development, and that's all sounds grand. But I'm really waiting to hear from you, Tony. And so I said, I said, prior to the meeting, I asked myself, how am I going to, what am I going to tell them? And the only thing I can tell them is what I've done before. So I put up a picture of the Empire Theater move that's, that was moving down 42nd Street some 22 years ago at that time. And the commissioner said to me, why are you showing me this picture because this is a di- totally different move than the than the vertical move you're you're asking permission to do for the Palace Theater, and I said, with all due respect, Madam Commissioner, I haven't figured it out yet. I promise you, I will. But I just want to show you that what seemed to be impossible 22 years ago is possible. I said Isaac Newton was with me then. And we were able to successfully move this thing down the block, something that has never been done in New York to this scale and and, and to, with this kind of visibility in that venue. So I said, I promise you, I, I will come back to you and show you how we're going to figure out how we're going to lift this 
theater 30 feet in the air if you just give me a chance. And as fate would have it, some of the other commissioners on the panel were very familiar with the Empire Theater Move. In fact, one of them stood up and said, I remember this job because I was the architect of record for the Empire Theater Move. He says, and I'm telling you, I believe that they're going to figure this out. You know, they said that the pigeons on the roof didn't know that that Empire Theater was moving. They were absolutely right. And and so I think that uh, if it was up to me, uh, I believe that this can be done. And I think we have the right company to do this. Mm. And so after a few more uh, back and forths and questions and answers, they adjourned temporarily uh, for about 15, 20 minutes. And they came back. And the commissioner said to me, okay, Mr. Mazzo, he said, this is a novel idea. And uh, in fact, I think it's necessary. Uh, there are 1,700 seats in this theater that pour out to the, the, uh, the, to Broadway twice on, a, twi- twice on a Sunday and every night of the week in what is now an overcrowded street corner to begin with. So having this venue up on the third floor where the attendees can disperse into the new commercial space below and not directly into the street makes a lot of sense. And I was so relieved. She says, but you have one chance at this. If something goes wrong or if this can't work, I will never entertain this again. But having said that, you have you have our approval to go ahead and uh, figure this out and come back to us and convince us that this could work and this could be done. So you talked about uh, access. You know, there's other trades on the job, and and you're always fighting to to get access. <laughs> How did you do that? Well, for you know, Eric, being my good friend, knows don't give a contractor, everything he needs to know until you reel him in. And then you start to feed him other information about the job as you go along. And he was he's my good friend and he knows how I am. I'm never going to say no. I'm just going to just take on more. Uh, but he knew to spoon feed me so he wouldn't overwhelm me because I was never going to walk away from this. Uh, it turned out that unlike most jobs that sequentially do one operation after the other, that being you demolish the building, then you do the foundation, then you do the concrete superstructure, and then you do the steel work, and one process follows another, not on this job. They all happen concurrently at the same time. The demolition was taking the old uh, double tree hotel down uh, from top to bottom uh, to about the 16th floor. the concrete uh, subcontractor was building new floors in above the old so they could take the old ones out when the new ones were in. We were in there uh, b- uh, below in the basement level drilling new caissons to support this new high-rise structure and be able to uh, a- excavate after the foundation and the building is up in the air. That's why we went to deep caissons uh, so that we can extend the support below the new excavated subcellar level and the steel guy 
who came in and, and erected these enormous steel trusses and columns and, and framing uh, um, to start to build the structure back out of the ground. So there were four major trades working at the same time, and we didn't have much street frontage. We only had about 200 feet on 47th Street and about a, a 150 feet along Broadway, or 7th Avenue, pardon me. And four trades, two streets, the math didn't work. So I immediately realized that because we work at the bottom, we're going to be left at the bottom. That's the way the industry works. The foundation guy is always the one who's left uh, on the at the bottom of the, of the pecking order. <laughs> so that being said, I said, okay, we're going to create our own street. First and foremost, we're not going to be on 47th of Broadway. We're going to create a... a a uh, access roadway right into the theater. And it turned out that the, that the side of the stage area faced 47th street. So we created an opening in the wall and we designed and constructed a steel platform supported on caissons uh, and timber decking, which enabled the crane, the concrete trucks, the rebar trucks, all the deliveries would pull into the theater across the stage area, unload or load as the case may be, the excavation trucks, and pull out of the theater and hit the street. So we, by doing so, we were independent of the of the street fight that the other three trades uh, had to deal with. How much headroom did you have when you had to start your drilling? Well, um, the existing basement was about 12 feet deep uh, with headroom. Uh, the rock started anywhere from three feet below the slab to as much as eight feet below. So what we did was we excavated uh, to the top of rock in a level plane to try to increase our headroom. But in the end, while we had a more headroom to, uh, to perform our rock excavation and foundation work, we were only allowed 12 feet uh, below the existing first floor orchestra slab, since that was a couple of feet in depth by itself. So whatever we were able to make up or advance in the earth excavation, we we lost in the depth of the existing orchestra slab framing. So essentially, we had twelve feet to work in uh, in order to fig in order to install our lifting system that was going to lift this theater. Mm -hmm. Didn't you have to design some custom drill or? Yes, yes. Forget. So, so um, we were putting caissons in for the new structure to begin with, uh, and we were only afforded in initially on the hotel side, which is the close, which is on the west side, closest to Seventh Avenue. We had about sixteen feet or so, so we were using some of our conventional drills that. We worked within 16-foot headroom. We tried to excavate to get as much advantage as we can, and we did. And these were 36-inch diameter caissons that were drilled 60 feet deep, 60 mm -hmm. feet plus at times. Uh, but when it came to the side where the uh, theater was, we only had 12 feet because we had to work under the foundation wall that had to remain to, to retain the first floor orchestra slab of the theater. So at that point, we realized that we that the conventional drill rigs were not going to work for us. So we called on Rick DeLouis, our drilling genius, and he designed 
a, uh, a portable caisson rig capable of drilling 36 and 42 inch diameter holes shafts in solid rock that went down some 65 feet deep. And uh, that really saved us. And what happened was when the clients saw that we had this piece of equipment, which no one had, uh, it, it was not on the market. This was custom made. He immediately said, can you make a second one? Because we're behind schedule and, you know, you can, you know, uh, please make another one so we can, we can catch up. And it turned out that we did. And it was fortunate that we did because of what we ultimately uh, devised a system as to how to lift the ballast theater, which was the last hurdle to, uh, to clear. Small detail. Yeah, it's just a small detail. <laughs> True. Um, all the conventional methods of needle beams and, and posts and so forth were disqualified because there was no room on the outside of the perimeter foundation wall or the inside to put this temporary lifting apparatus. Why? Because on the outside, the protective scaffolding came all the way down to the basement level, which left me no room to, to install uh, shores on that side. And on the inside, they were already, we were excavating in rock uh, all the way down, and we were starting to put the underground utilities at the same time. So nowhere was there any room to put what we conceived as conventional lifting uh, configurations with needle beams and, and, uh, and jacks and so forth. So I went to them because I finished this entire uh, submission of shop drawings and calculations and I submitted for approval. And once I did, they said, Tony, this is great, but we can't do it this way. And they looked at, I said, what do you mean you can't do it this way? Well, so well, we got the scaffolding outside. We have the utility work on the inside. So we, you can't do it. I said, wait a minute. What takes priority here? Aren't the, you want me to lift this theater, but but the electrician and the scaffolding guy takes priority? I said, Tony, the job has to go. You know all, job, all uh, uh, subcontractors work at the same time. So, so what do you want me to do? He says, well, you, I want you to figure it out. I said, how am I supposed to do that? I said, well, you, you're pretty smart guy. You figure it out. You signed up for this. <laughs> so, you know, he left me speechless. You know, always give a compliment to let a guy on his heels <laughs> and, and never have a comeback, right? So I walked away and, and I said, oh, my God, how are we going to do this? And uh, it took a while of going through the metamorphosis of, dismissing all the conventional solutions that we grew up with and what we've implemented all these years, those things that we had confidence in and experience in and delve in beyond that realm into the unexplored part of your, uh, of, of your knowledge and of your ability. And it turned out that one day I was on the site and I was watching the steel guy put these big core beams, these, which are big steel I-beams, and and, lo and lowering them down into our drilled shafts, those 36-inch diameter drilled shafts. And I'm watching it, and suddenly I had an epiphany. I said, you know, what if I was able to, if they could put the beam and slide it down, wouldn't that be a, if, we, if I reversed it, why couldn't I make that a piston to a hydraulic jack system. In other words, why can't the, the, the shaft 
be the casing of a of a hydraulic jack, and the core beam be the piston. If I could figure out a way how to have that deep beam inside that deep shaft come up with a force that can lift hundreds of tons of theater weight, I could do this. And I could do this in one stroke, and I can do this without too much trouble. And so it took a little while for me to put it on paper, but we devised a system where we actually re-envisioned and reconfigured, not in a great way, but in a slight way to take a conventional caisson, which is what we were installing to support the new hotel, and reassign what what the components are doing so that the outside casing stays where it is, but we're going to lift the core beam hydraulically uh, with a, a series of hydraulic jacks at the top of the shaft and threaded rods going all the way down to the bottom of the shaft that grab the bottom of that core beam. And we systematically pulled it up by its bootstraps um, to a to a vertical rise of some 30 feet in the air. Uh, th this was something when I first came into my office and I showed this to my two associates who were working with me, Adam Wall and Rich Falcone. They looked at me and they said, oh, my God, you got it. I said, what do I got? He says, that's the way to do it. He says, I have never... I, how did you come up with this? I said, I'm not really sure. I said, but divine intervention comes to mind. Amen. And, <laughs> and so, and so we, we, okay. I said, okay. So we started to develop it. I said, Adam, okay, here's what I think. I'm sizing it up. You finish the details of the design because he, he's a PE. He's, he's very smart. And I wanted to engage my younger, my younger, my younger uh, executives. So he, he, um, he ran with it, uh, and and he did a great job with that. Uh, but we, I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure it was going to work until I knew it was going to work. So we actually simulated the functioning of this hydraulic lifting case on in our yard, where we drilled we drilled a thirty foot deep hole, and we put a thirty a thirty six inch casing in a hole, and we and we dropped a beam in, and we hung the threaded rods from the bottom, and we actually. Physically, I wanted to see how this is going to work, and it actually, in, in five-inch strokes, pulled this core beam 30 feet in the air. And I said, okay, guys, I think we got it, because I wanted to get the bugs out, because I knew that the whole world's going to watch this, and we're going to be on we're going to be on stage, no pun intended, and the spotlight's going to be on us, <laughs> and we don't, want a we don't want the curtain to fall on us before we got this thing done. No. Uh, and and, it, and it, it proved to work out very well, very well. How many jacks were there? So the the building weighed some seven thousand tons. Mm -hmm. We de designed each lifting post to max out at six hundred tons, but every location of where we put the jacking post didn't all have six hundred tons. Some had some locations had as little as a hundred tons, and some had three hundred tons, four hundred tons. But I wanted one size fits all because in this kind of a uh, operation, you may be borrowing load that you think that it's all going to go up uniformly, but sometimes uh, uh, things happen where it may temporarily borrow from its neighbor 
load and, and take it accordingly. So we were, they were all designed for 600 tons each. There were 34 of them, each one having four jacks. And if the math is right, we had 136 hydraulic jacks that we, that we utilized to lift the theater. Mm -hmm. That must have been some day. It was, uh, it, it, you know, the difficulty was installing all of these hydraulic jacks. You're drilling the hole with the special drill rig that Rick designed. And my genius dock builders are so skillful, led by Bobby Hansen, who's a magician, to install all of these hydraulic jacks, uh, jacking systems, these caisson systems, um, and uh, which I, uh, which you could feel my entire staff in the field was so engaged. They were so excited as the, as the lifting mechanisms went in and the job took form. They were so excited to see how this was going to work. And the scary part about it is it was more difficult to install it than actually to use it because once the installation system was in, we designed this for the jacks to lift the, uh, lift the lifting post up with this is the core beam inside the case on uh, five inches and just run some threaded rods down, just the nuts on the threaded rods, then retract, run some threaded rods. So we had 25 dock builders standing around half hours at a, in cycles until they could just turn four threaded nuts per uh, uh, four <laughs> locations, which could make any contracting supervisor nervous as hell because these guys are getting a lot of money, but they're not doing much work. <laughs> But simplicity is bliss, and mm -hmm. because it was so simple, uh, it we we can monitor it, uh, we we can uh, um, measure it, and after a while, it, it worked like a charm. We were getting an average of two and a half foot of rise per shift. Wow! Yeah. So the total time elapsed was uh, it took about. I, I want to tell you in the beginning there was a lot more. Uh, visual vigilance on the part of the consultants and the monitoring people. So we, you know, the first couple of days we may have moved a foot or so. Um, so in, in all, to, to, to actually achieve the 30-foot lift, it took a total of 15 days, three weeks, 15 shifts, to uh, no overtime, just 15 shifts and, and to lift the, the theater in the air. That's fascinating. And, and as a result, um, I just recently heard from my patent lawyer that uh, the patent was approved for this lift case on. Uh, uh, and um, we're, we're all very proud of it. Uh, it, it becomes the, uh, the mascot of our company. Mm, not easy to do in your field. No, no, it isn't. <clears throat> we give away, your field gives away a lot of ideas for free. I, I should say. It does. It does. And, mm. and look, I, I, we, 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 uh, we pursued the patent to put it in our name. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think, I don't think that any good idea should be wasted. And mm -hmm. so I imagine that, you know, other people, if, if anybody ever has the, uh, the notion that they want to lift something heavy in, in, in uh, very tall heights, that they won't employ this um, apparatus, but we just wanted to put it in our name to memorialize it and, mm -hmm. and, and, and give it an identity. Understood. So, uh, you know, a lot of people said that uh, it was risky, that you didn't really have to do it. Um, why bother? You've mm -hmm. accomplished mm -hmm. enough. 
Yeah. What do you say to that? Well, a lot of people said that to me. So Tony, you, you've had a pretty decent career and you're, you're beyond your retirement age. Not too much, but I, I am. And he said, why would you do it? Why'd you do this? I mean, a lot of people steered away from it because uh, the risk was greater than the reward. You know, and, and because everybody envisioned, oh my God, if this theater come crashing down in the middle of Times Square, there is no return from this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the trick is never to think about that. You know, I, mm-hmm. uh, I use the term, never look up. Um, mm-hmm. and, and <laughs> I, that comes from uh, when I would walk the job with young people and describe what we had to do. And all they would do is look up and see the enormity and the magnificence of this theater. And I would tell them, just don't look up. Mm-hmm. You know, just look down. Don't let it intimidate you. And and they would laugh, but they understood. So there are three reasons why I did this. Uh, I, I took on this project, aside from the fact that I just knew intuitively that we could do it. Um, I did it to pay tribute to this great heavy construction industry in this in New York. I mean, the greatest town in the world. How do you not do this? How do you not make it happen in uh, in Times Square, the crossroads of the world, right? Why shouldn't New York get this notoriety? And mm-hmm. why shouldn't Urban um, um, be put on that plaque to identify this uh, landmark event? So I wanted to pay tribute to, to the great skill set of the New York construction industry, number one. Number two, I wanted to recognize and and put to the forefront what our engineering world and our engineering society is capable of doing. That if you trust the science and you believe that Isaac Newton is sitting on your shoulder while you do this, uh, it's a tribute to the, the civil engineering world and the engineering world at large. So I wanted to bring that to the forefront of, of society's consciousness. But most of all, personally, the reason why I, I really wanted to do this was to reach out to the younger generation and tell them it's okay to reach out beyond your comfort zone, to discover what your full potential is. Because when you do, you're going to find that anything is possible. Mm. And that's what I wanted to, that's what I wanted to demonstrate. Mm, that's awesome. I like to say that I find the people in your industry so fascinating because to a certain extent, we're shaped by the problems we solve. Mm-hmm. And civil engineers in particular uh, understand things like water and gravity and, and they they tend to be very reasonable people. Um, and this, you could argue that you are being unreasonable in this job. <laughs> However, <laughs> that's how we grow and yes. that's how we learn, that's which we... also makes us interesting people. Um, is there anything that you might like to say or ask me or, or just, just comment on that we haven't talked about today that you feel is important? Or... Um, well, I, I hope that, um, that this conversation today uh, has some value uh, in, in the form of education. Uh, I think that seeing is believing in this world. And, and so I'm hoping that by my explanation, my expression, my world, my life's experience, it could touch 
many people in certain ways in their own life and their own development and maybe identify with something that I I went through personally in my life and help them to achieve their goals and um, exceed their own expectations. No doubt. There's so many messages in there. I mean, just the Horatio Alger story, you know, modest beginnings, doing great things, paying attention to opportunities when they come along, divine intervention, you know, believing in miracles. <laughs> I think it's all there. I mean, it's a great, it's a great, great, you've had a great career. Um, you you seem very fulfilled. It's a great story. I love listening to the theater story. Mm. That may be the fourth time I've heard it. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> it's better every time. Uh, um, but thank you so much for this. And um, I really appreciate you speaking with me. And uh, we could uh, we could talk all day. I'm I, sure. I, but yeah, you don't give me don't encourage me because I can talk <laughs> all day. <laughs> I like talking about this kind of stuff. And uh, I'm glad you invited me to do this. Uh, I'm happy to do it for you, and I hope that um, it does some good for uh, a lot of people. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Thanks, Tony. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. If you enjoy the most fascinating podcast in the world, please follow on Spotify, subscribe on YouTube, and follow on Apple Podcasts.